0: Welcome back to the NatMatSci podcast, brought to you by the National Mathematics and Science College. This is the podcast to let you find out more about NatMatSci by hearing staff and students talking about their experiences, all unscript and unplugged so that you can hear what life is really like at the college. Today, I'm with Dr. Andy Kemp, principal at the college. We talk about what's been happening at the college, the new boarding facilities, how the catering there has changed, and I think you're gonna be impressed with these changes, and what's coming up in the future. But we also talk about technology, innovation, communicating these advances to the outside world before getting onto the subject of self-driving cars. Always an interesting subject. That's all coming up in this episode. So come with me now as we speak to the principal, Dr. Andy Kemp. Andy, thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm very well. It's really lovely to be back and having a chance to talk with you. It's been a little while, and so it's nice to be able to tell you a little bit more about what's been going on here at the college.
0: Well, I'm dying to find that out a little bit later in this episode. But first of all, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, midway through the afternoon. Tell us a little bit about what the, what a typical day looks like at the college, but maybe just by explaining how it looks today. What sort of things are happening at the college today, right now?
1: Absolutely. I'm not sure there's ever a typical day in any school, but today is certainly as as typical as they come. So uh, this afternoon, we've got. Students involved in the Molelympics uh, which is a fantastic chemistry competition. Uh, it's a little bit silly, it's a lot of fun uh, so they're all upstairs at the moment kind of do, running around and doing all sorts of crazy chemical experiments and bits and pieces so uh, yeah we'll be putting some photos up on social media later to show a little bit of the fun and games they've been up to
0: sorry did you call that molelympics did i hear that right
1: yeah it is it's the molelympics so a, a mole is um, a, a quantity in it from a chemistry uh, perspective and so this is the ke- kind of a fun chemistry olympiad so it's the molelympics Uh, Yeah, it's as silly as it sounds, but it's fun.
0: I love the fact that you can have humour in some of these specifics regarding, you know, science and maths and, and these kind of specialist subjects. I think it's a great way to enjoy and embrace those kind of subjects and especially when you've got students there who really are passionate about those subjects.
1: Absolutely any excuse for us to geek out it's a very kind of healthy way of, of approaching all this stuff so yeah we we like the fun and we like the science and putting them together what more could you want.
0: So Andy it's been a few months since we last spoke tell us a little bit about what's been happening over the last few months since we did last record a podcast episode you and me together.
1: Absolutely so college has been going from strength to strength over the last little while our student numbers have grown quite a lot since last year so there's now almost a 110 students in the college this year which is really exciting for us. Uh, It's that kind of sense of community and growth uh, but it's also been about kind of making sure that we get all the things ready so that we could manage that growth well. So one of the really exciting things this September has been opening our new boarding house Uh, so those of you that have seen our old boarding house which was on one side of the college we've now moved to the other side of the college into a purpose brand new building Um, and that's just glorious and the kids are really loving it over there kind of again slightly bigger rooms than we had before but still all single rooms all ensuite bathrooms Uh, lots of common spaces Uh, we've got a pool table going in next week we've got some table football we've got some games areas we've got a little gym just lovely facilities because I think It's really important, particularly for our international borders, that we recognise that boarding house isn't just a boarding house, it's a home. This is the place where they live for, in some cases, nine months of the year, um, because they don't necessarily go home at Christmas. They don't all of them go home at Easter. And so for some of them, they're there for a very long period of time. And so it's about making sure that we can provide those facilities so that they feel really relaxed and can enjoy themselves uh, in all the different aspects of their lives. So, uh, yeah, really excited about that. And that's kind of been a big lift at the beginning of this year.
0: Andy, just tell us a little bit more about that. I'm guessing this is a new build. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so brand new building built about 10 metres behind the college. So it's not a long walk, uh, which was useful today because it was tipping it down with rain. And So when I had to pop over to the the boarding house earlier today, uh, I was grateful I didn't have to go too far because I didn't get too wet.
0: Now, just describe what, what, what the bedrooms are like. You know, if I was uh, if I was being given a tour right now and I walk into one of the bedrooms, then what do I experience? What do I see there?
1: Absolutely. So as you come into the room, you'll see a desk in front of you uh, and then a big window where you can see out into the grounds of the campus and some of the green areas around the college. To your right, you'll find a kind of three-quarter size double bed uh, with some storage underneath. Uh, there's a wardrobe in there. And then just as you come in the door on your right, you'll find another little door and inside that is your ensuite bathroom. Uh, and so, in there, you'll find your sink. Uh, it's lovely and kind of white and bright area. You've got a big shower in there. Um, so, you've got your own private space. Uh, they're not huge rooms, by, but they are very nice, generous rooms. Uh, and if you compare them to the kind of spaces you might get in a university environment, they're at the, very much at the nice end of university accommodation. So, they're it's plenty of space, plenty of room. And the nice thing is there's all those common spaces as well within the building where you can sit down and chat with your friends or sit and do some work together uh, that really adds to the experience.
0: And are the bedrooms for individuals or are any of them for sharing?
1: Yep. so all single rooms. Uh, every room in the college is a single bedroom. Um, and we think that's really important because of the age of our students. I think if you're dealing with younger students, shared bedrooms can work really well and can be a really positive experience. But by the time you reach kind of 16, 17, 18, you kind of want that little bit of independence and that little bit of space and some way where you can close the door and just be alone for 10 minutes because boarding is an environment with lots of wonderful things. It's great to be part of a big community. But for those of us that are a little bit more introverted... The ability to shut the door and just be alone for a little while is really important. And so we, we think it's really important that we're able to offer single rooms to everybody who wants one.
0: And, and I guess more in keeping with life at university as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there are very few universities that still offer kind of twin or more rooms. They do occasionally, uh, but absolutely the, the vast majority of people are used to these kind of single rooms. Uh, and therefore it's an important that we're able to offer that as well at this age.
0: And then carry on taking me around the boarding house. You mentioned some of those common areas. What do I expect to see in those?
1: Absolutely. So every seven or eight bedrooms, you'll find there's another common space. Uh, And those common spaces are used for a whole host of different things. So some are kitchens, where students can cook if they want to for themselves, where they might do some baking at the weekend, where they might decide to prepare something when they feel like a snack. Uh, We will come back to kind of the the catering later, I suspect. Uh, But there are some kitchen spaces. Some of them are laid out to be kind of games rooms. So we've got a room that has um, a big TV in it and a PlayStation attached to it. Uh, It's also got a kind of traditional arcade machine, uh, which is very much kind of a bit of fun that I thought I. Is basically for my benefit, really, as much as anybody (laughs) else's. I was finishing setting that up earlier today. So I I played a couple of games of Pac-Man on it, which was great for nostalgia. So I'm I'm very much enjoying that. Uh, And then other parts of the building, there are things like um, table football or a pool table. So all of those spaces so they can relax and enjoy themselves. And then some rooms are set up uh, really more for work. So some of them have just got big tables in where they can sit down and groups and chat about their work of an evening uh, if they don't want to work by themselves in their room. So there's that flexibility to be part of that community when you want to be part of the community and lots of things that you can do when you do. But also that opportunity to just step back and, and be by yourself for a little while when you want to. So we're able to offer both within that environment.
0: Now you mentioned catering, and you and you you said we'll we'll come back to that possibly shortly. Uh, that kind of indicates there's something you want to say about catering. What's that all about?
1: I would love to. So I would be the first to say our catering in the past was adequate but not much more than adequate. Uh, And it's something that I was really passionate about trying to resolve. And one of the great things that our new boarding house has given us is the ability to have a proper kitchen and a restaurant on site. So the ground floor of our new boarding house is effectively given over to a restaurant. Uh, And we use the word restaurant because it's not a school canteen. It's about providing really high quality food for our students. So we're now able to provide three cooked meals a day. We have snacks in the morning, snacks in the evening. We have a Brista coffee service that runs at break times and after college. The quality of the food is really, really exceptional now. And that's really important to me. Again, we were talking before about that fact that for these borders, this is their home. Uh, And if the food we're providing isn't good enough or isn't to their taste, then we're not really suiting them. We're not really serving their needs properly. And so we've invested really heavily in making sure our catering is of a much, much higher quality. And we're, we're aiming to have some of the best catering in the field. Uh, and we're very much kind of getting towards there. The team who've joined us this year from um, IFG have been outstanding. Uh, and we're really looking forward to kind of seeing where they take us over the next few months. But just for example, today at lunchtime, we had In-house battered fish and chips was exceptional. Uh, Spanish chicken. We had some, what else did we have? We had some bowls with uh, rice and vegetables uh, in a kind of uh, fajita-type environment. Uh, We had some lemon possets for pudding. We had a tomato and basil soup. We had about seven or eight different salads available. Um, and, And that's very typical. That's a normal day for us. I had arancini last night. So those kind of fried rice balls uh, was was what I had for dinner last night. So, because wow. I was staying over. So the the quality of the food is is properly exceptional. You must come and visit Simon. I'd love to give you an opportunity to try some.
0: Um, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking right now. This is exactly what I'd like to do. We're, we're recording this right now. It's, it's half past three on a Friday afternoon. I skipped lunch, so I'm even more hungry and drooling at the idea of coming along and sharing some of that food. Uh, so just tell me quickly. How do you go about staying in good shape yourself when <laughs>
1: with, with, with all of that food around you? Yeah that, that's part of the reason we also put a gym in the building uh, just to give people the chance to work off some of lunch and dinner. Uh, so we've got a, a nice little gym uh, within the building which has got um, a running machine, a rowing machine, a cross trainer, a bike and some weights so that students can work out a little bit in the house if they want to uh, and then they've still got access to the gym kind of about four or five minutes down the road uh, where there's a swimming pool and squash courts and tennis courts and all of those kind of things. So yeah uh, making sure there's the opportunity to work off lunch is quite an important thing i think for all of us so
0: sorry just to clarify you've kind of got two gyms then. you've you've got the main gym but then you've also got a smaller gym in the boarding house
1: yeah absolutely so the main gym is part of a a public leisure center which is about three or four minutes walk from the college Uh, and that's the one we've always traditionally used and it's a great gym it's it's state of the art it's got all the facilities you can imagine lovely swimming pool in it uh, loads of exercise classes the students can sign up for as well and that's all included for all our students but we felt that kind of even that kind of four or five minute walk sometimes when the weather's horrible uh, and all you want to do is just kind of quick 20 minutes on a bike or something we ought to put something that was a little bit closer to home so on the first floor of the boarding house we've got our little gym uh, which gives them just a little a few facilities they can work out in the boarding house whenever they want within reason uh, and then give them that opportunity to then go out if they want to do something a bit bigger.
0: So while it's really good to hear about boarding life at the college I'd love to understand a little bit more about what's happening on the more academic side of things. things. What changes have been going on in that side of uh, school life?
1: Absolutely. So uh, things are very much growing on that side as well. So as well as all the kind of normal academic work we've been doing and the kind of enrichment competitions that we've always entered lots of, uh, we noticed that our students were really passionate about trying to find out how to become better scientists. Uh, And we noticed that whilst they have really good scientific knowledge, sometimes they lack the communication skills they need to really explain their scientific understanding to other people. Uh, And I'm a great believer that my students should go on and change the world. And if they're going to change the world, knowing lots of science is great. But if you can't convince anybody of the science, as we've seen with climate change over the last 20 years, knowing lots of stuff doesn't necessarily change anything. And so what we've done this year is we've introduced a whole new STEM communication program. This runs across four terms. So it starts with our uh, lower sixth, our year one students, and runs through until about Christmas of year two. And across that course, there's an opportunity for students to get involved in a whole range of different activities. So they'll spend time looking at doing experimental work, uh, learning things like LaTeX. Uh, LaTeX is a typesetting language used in maths and science for presenting kind of, articles and journals that kind of work Uh, we're doing some work with them on presentation skills so giving them the opportunity to give um, a lecture or a presentation uh, working with them to design kind of posters to describe science competition type ideas Uh, and the whole thing will build up towards them working towards a group project where they'll write a paper and then producing a single solo paper of their own work uh, based upon some research they've carried out. And the intention is that we'll then publish those journal articles at the end, uh, because we're looking forward to seeing some really impressive science come from it. And the idea is that then when they leave us, they have a better idea of the skills and the developments they'll need to be working, practising scientists in the field, uh, not just people who happen to know quite a lot of science. And so we're really excited about it. We've got a number of external lecturers coming in as well to give examples and to talk to the students. Um, And so it's been a really rich and rewarding experience already. We're only half a term in, um, but the students are really enjoying it so far and we're really excited about where it's taking us.
0: And one of the things you mentioned there was about climate change and communication. And you you can't really mention that without me remembering about a year ago on TV, there was the Leonardo DiCaprio film, Don't Look Up. I don't know whether or not you saw it. Uh, Do you you think that, I mean, uh, the the basic premise of that film is about climate change, big disaster uh, coming and uh, the scientists know this and they try to explain this to the world and basically nobody takes them seriously. Do you think that scientists in particular have in the past had problems with communication?
1: I, I think as a field, one of the problems is science is very technical. And by its nature, it's very technical. It needs to be to explain the rigor of what we're doing. And sometimes the result of all that technicality is we fail to explain what it is we really mean. And so that it's I think it's the reason why, in many ways, the the first time uh, climate change became something people really talked about. Uh, and understood in, in this kind of zeitgeist was actually when Al Gore stepped in as as a, a politician uh, who understood enough of the science to be able to talk about it meaningfully and able us to break that barrier. Because the reality is, the science of climate change we've known about for over a hundred years. There there are articles about scientists talking about what was coming kind of a hundred years ago. It's exactly the same as the thing that happened with smoking. Kind of, the scientists knew that smoking was bad. And yet we didn't explain it well enough. And so people were able to go, well, you're just making it up or it's not really true because they didn't want to believe it. And so I think it's really crucial that scientists have the ability to work either themselves or to work with people who could communicate their ideas effectively to the public because the public want to know. They do. I I genuinely believe they want to understand the science that's going on, but they need it to be explained to them in a way that they can access because they don't want to get down into the weeds of the technicalities, and neither should they. But we can't gloss over the technicalities, because if we gloss over them, we end up with these trite statements that don't really mean anything. And so it's it's a really delicate balance, and I think it's the reason why STEM communication is such an important field for everybody working in there, so that we can get these ideas across properly to people. And whether or not that's for something as huge as climate change, or, or the dangers of smoking, Or whether or not it's simply in a workplace where you're dealing with scientific research and somebody explaining effectively the nuance of what that research means to this particular situation so that somebody actually responds appropriately we see it all the time with the kind of newspaper headlines that tell us red meat causes cancer and then next week red meat is brilliant for us and we should all be eating red meat and then it kind of swaps from one to the other because people take the science in such isolation and all they read is the headline Mm. And the headline tells you nothing. And so what we need is we need to be better at it. And the reality is journalists are unlikely ever to get good enough at the science because that requires just lifetime's worth of work to understand the nuance of the science. And therefore, I think it's contingent on us as scientists to do a better job of explaining the science to everyone else.
0: And is there a need for mathematicians to communicate just as well as scientists?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think we've seen that because the, the way in which maths engages with so much of life Kind of, we're all in the middle of this um, this joyful financial crisis that's going on in the UK at the moment, and so much of that comes from a lack of understanding of the mathematics and the way in which kind of people respond to the mathematics. And again, if we can be clearer about what we mean then we can be much more successful. And we look at what went wrong with with the recent mini budget situation. Most of it was because it wasn't effectively communicated and they hadn't bothered to check their sums beforehand. And the markets reacted very badly to the fact that basically it looked like people were just making stuff up. And so it's really important that we take the time to communicate effectively the maths, the science, the understanding, the reasoning behind all the things we do. Because if we understand why we're doing things, then we're more likely to follow them. But we're also more likely to make better decisions in the long run.
0: Do you think, Andy, that we're in a beautiful age right now where, you know, the geeky side of school life, of college life is is actually way more cool than it used to be? I'm thinking back to, uh, well, I I mean, I'm age 48. Certainly when I was at school, it wasn't so cool. But I kind of get the impression that it is much more cool now.
1: I think there's certainly some truth in that. I think in some schools, uh, you can still be a little bit of an outsider if you're into maths and science. You're still slightly on the edge. Um, I think if you come to a place like like the National Maths and Science College, you're a bit of a rock star here, we love this stuff. And it's incredibly cool to love maths and science here. Kind of it, and I think it's for me, it's one of the great things about coming here, is these students who sometimes have felt a little bit on the edge in other schools, suddenly discover there's a load of people who love the same stuff that they do, and realise that this stuff is really important. But I think you're right, we've seen that kind of gentle shift, particularly in the, around the world of politics. There's been this discussion over the last five, ten years about the fact that actually, science and, and, and kind of data should be doing a better job of informing the decision making we take. Uh, and this move towards having more data literate people in the tops of professions, I think, is really important. And, and so, I think there is this sense that stuff like big data is really cool. Big data is what's going to allow us to have self driving cars. It's not because some sort of clever person sat in a room. And wrote an algorithm to tell the car how to drive because that's not how self-driving cars work the way self-driving cars work is they're basically told a handful of rules and then they just look at what's around them and respond and keep practicing it and gradually they learn for themselves like an infant does um, and you end up with a computer that knows how to drive a car but if you were to ask it how it drives the car it wouldn't be able to tell you And that in itself is quite exciting. It's quite scary as well, but it's quite exciting. Um, And that whole world of big data, artificial intelligence um, is properly exciting and is going to continue to change the world for the better, as long as we engage with it well, and as long as the people working in it are able to explain what they're doing as they go, so that we don't end up with this scaremongering around the fact that we're going to end up with a Terminator and Skynet's about to take over which is not likely to happen.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's stick with your example there of the self-driving cars I mean, and the accumulation of big data. I, I imagine that one of the ways that the self-driving car uh, industry is able to collect all of that big data is by actually having cars on real roads. But of course, once you have cars on real roads, self-driving cars on real roads, Suddenly you're in that environment where, where dangerous situations can occur. How do you get that balance right between progressing the technology yeah. while also maintaining a level of safety in the world?
1: Absolutely. And, and it is, it's a really interesting area. So it's, it's about staggering that process. So you start by testing on test tracks, which are very safe. Uh, where there's no real risk and you can build it up and you can add artificial things the reality is that will get you so far but only so far the next stage is you start putting these cars on on real roads but you put them on real roads with drivers so the driver is there constantly it's a bit like um my car has um a little bit of automation so i've got cruise control in it it will do some lane keeping it will adjust my speeds for me um so when i'm driving kind of I'm I'm monitoring that, but I'm not actively controlling my speed in the way that I would do if I was driving manually. Uh, but I'm in charge because I know that at any moment I might need to take over. And that's that kind of middle ground where we've got some level of autonomy, but some level of oversight from a real person and then you take the gamble. And I think that that's the honest truth. There is a stage where you just go, actually, we think this is working well enough. We've got enough evidence that it's working well enough that this is now safe to release on the roads. And it's interesting, if you look at Tesla's evidence, if you look at the number of crashes that Tesla cars have per mile driven and compare it to us real people driving cars, they're already much safer than we are. Uh, The problem is when you think about a self-driving car, you expect it to be perfect you hold it to that high level, that high bar, that actually any time a Tesla has an accident, the world goes, oh my goodness, this is a disaster, they're never going to work. Whereas the reality is we know there are road accidents every day all over the country from people driving cars. And so the first thing we need to assure ourselves is, are are self-driving cars better than people? That's the target. Mm. The the initial target should never have been, self-driving cars should be perfect. They just need to be better than us. And then from there we can make them even better until they are almost perfect and i think it's about understanding that journey and again i think it comes back to the communication aspect i'm not sure we've always done a good enough job of explaining that a self-driving car doesn't need to be a perfect car it just needs to be better than the average person and it's still a net contribution to the reducing the risk of being on the road so if we've got self-driving cars that are doing even slightly better than us the number of people who die in road accidents every year will go down Uh, And that's got to be a good thing as we work our way towards a perfect utopian solution of self-driving cars that never crash.
0: Now, they say, don't they, that you can almost tell somebody's age or at least their generation by how well they're embracing technology and innovation. Um, How do you see that amongst the students that you have there at the college being much younger than, say, the likes of our parents?
1: Yeah, I, I think they are very relaxed about technology and very kind of embracing of it i think what makes it interesting in an environment like the college is that by virtue of the subjects and the material that we do the staff here are actually very engaged in that stuff as well Uh, and so the people that they're engaging with who are the adults are also as excited as they are about self-driving cars and about artificial intelligence and all of those kind of things so it's a slightly different environment than the wider world where There is that great expression, and I forget the exact quote, but it's a Douglas Adams quote uh, who wrote a lot of uh, great science fiction work. And he talks about the fact that the technology you embrace when you're young is exciting, but you, you understand it. Uh, and then the technology you embrace when you're older it just feels like magic and witchcraft <laughs> uh, and there's this kind of difference in between where where suddenly kind of you introduce an idea like a smartphone to somebody who's who's five or six and it's perfectly natural and you give it to somebody who's 60 who's never seen one before and, and for many it's quite intimidating and scary and I, I think some of that is just about your inhibitions and and your your sense of risk and when you're young you feel invincible you feel like you could take on the whole world, nothing could possibly hurt you. Uh, And so you're willing to just, you you take a new piece of technology, you poke around a bit, you press some buttons, and you hope that eventually it'll do what you want it to do. Whereas actually, as you get older, I think you become a little bit more anxious about the technology and you worry that you might break it, you might damage it. Uh, And the reality is most of the time, if you keep poking uh, kind of something technological, eventually it does the thing you want it to do and it'll be fine. But it's about feeling confident enough to take those risks, I think. And I think that's often what goes wrong.
0: Andy I'm keeping an eye on time we should probably bring this podcast episode to a close but what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put a link to that Douglas Adams quote because uh, I I think it's really relevant to include that um, and and I think it'd be great for people to read that so if you're listening to this right now and you want to know more about that Douglas Adams quote then it is very relevant then check out the show notes for this podcast episode Uh, but Andy thank you for unpacking a bit more of school life to us it's great to hear all about the college what's been going on what's coming up in the future but also uh, it's great to talk about some of these technology and innovation advances and the viewpoints of uh, the students at the college, but also members of staff. But uh, uh, let's bring it to a close. But thank you very much for your time.
1: Always a pleasure. Take care, Simon.
0: So that was Principal Dr Andy Kemp giving us an update on his thoughts on the need for scientists to communicate better. The Douglas Adams quote is in the show notes, but if you're listening to this in the car and you can't look it up, then I have it right here. He says... Anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. And he also wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so there are many reasons why he knows what he's talking about. 42 at least. Now, our next episode is coming out soon, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.